Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Brandon Munro, who is the CEO of Bannerman Resources. They're an ASX-listed Uranium Junior. Their project is in Namibia. It's quite a large CapEx project, about 800 million bucks, which is causing some concern with potential investors. But Brandon talks us through why he thinks he can get that finance and gives us an alternative lower CapEx solution too. We look at some of the components that they're working through to refine and optimize their DFS. Um, enjoy the podcast. Hello, Brandon. How are you, sir? Um, well, thanks, Matt. How are you? Not too bad. We haven't spoken for ages. <laughs> Just like old friends, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, well, look, today we're not going to get your view of the world of uranium today. We're going to talk about Bannerman, much in demand. We've been asked by everyone. So um, let's do it. So kick off, please. Give us that one minute overview of what you've got at Bannerman, and then we'll get stuck into it. So Bannerman's uranium focused. We've been in Namibia working on our Itango project since 2006. It is an enormous project. The total resource is 271 million pounds. And within that, there's a mining reserve of 130 million pounds. It's highly advanced. And we completed our DFS back in 2012, optimized it in 2015, again in 2017. And we've also got a three-year pilot plant through running our heat leach demonstration plant to add to the advanced attributes of the project. It's great being in Namibia. It's great having uh, such a large project that's advanced, that's got environmental and social permitting, and also the credibility that we have within the nuclear sector and the uranium sector counts heavily in our favour. Okay, thanks for that. Now, today, if you don't mind, I want to feature on where you guys think you fit in the mix, okay? Because I, we've made a big store, we've put great store by talking to the market and saying, junior uranium companies need to work out where they fit in this cycle and the next and how they're actually going to monetize them, what they've got for shareholders, okay? But first, again, because for all types of audiences watching this, which would be there's a lot of generalists moving into this space. So I think it's worth... Um, going over the supply demand component, all bit briefly, because they can watch some of the other interviews we've done with yourself and people like Mike Alkin. Um, so, can you just sort of give us a little overview about the what's happening in the market in terms of supply and demand? Sure. So, briefly, in terms of demand, there is steady growing demand within the uranium sector, driven by particularly nuclear power plant growth in the Far East, China, Russia, Middle East, and the emerging world. And the absolute big driver of demand over the next two decades is China. So to put some numbers on that, the World Nuclear Association's demand numbers are about between 2% per annum compound average growth rate, which is their reference case, up to 35 percent per annum compound average growth rate, which is their uppercase scenario. And as many of your listeners would know, I'm reasonably familiar with those numbers because I chair the WNA committee that puts those numbers together. The big driver is China. And just to put the scale of their demand influence into some perspective here, by 2040, 
based on the uppercase numbers, which is what I subscribe to when it comes to the China growth story, those uppercase numbers point to China's annual consumption of uranium being more than all of the uranium that was mined around the world last year. So they will become an enormous player in this sector. And 2040, for people who perhaps don't folk, uh, follow the uranium cycle, uh, this cycle moves on a long bandwidth in the sense that reactors, they spend about five years in planning and permitting and about five years being built, and then they run for, at the moment, up to 80 years. So when you've got a cycle length that long, 2040 is really just around the corner. China needs to be making its decisions in the next few years as to where it will source its uranium by 2040. And if you subscribe to that uh, number like I do, that means astonishing implications for this sector and who's going to have the producible pounds that China can access by the time we get there. So if we turn to supply, the uranium sector today is very much a supply story. We've had oversupply since Fukushima in 2011, and that was because most of the world's producers were happily producing into long-term contracts where the prices had been set during the last boom. So when we saw a big drop off in demand, particularly in Japan, but also in Germany, as a result of Fukushima, that 10% immediate hole in demand for uranium did not receive a complementary supply response. Those producers just happily kept producing into those contracts and the, uh, the utilities were keen to honor those contracts and they kept accepting deliveries. That produced a significant overhang in the market, which only started to be addressed three years ago. We've spent the last two years in quite a deep sector deficit, which has primarily been caused by the Kazakhs, which are the largest uranium producers in the world, reducing their uh, production by 20%. And also, Cameco uh, putting the MacArthur River uranium mine, a giant uranium mine, the largest one in the world, into care and maintenance. So last year, we were running, by my modelling, about a 20 million pound deficit, and that's on a total consumption annually of around 180 million pounds. So that's a big substantial deficit. Enter COVID-19, where we're seeing that deficit in, by my numbers, doubling most likely this year because we've seen various mine disruptions. And there's been a lot of commentary on that that uh, people can get from the other videos that you've done with myself and other uranium market commentators. So you put those two together, you've got a very attractive demand profile that's, uh, that is distorted towards Chinese growth. And then you've got a supply side that creates what many, including myself, believe is a spectacular investment opportunity in the near term in uranium. Fantastic. And we can answer if, at the end of this interview some more questions about China. So we'll come back to that one. What I want to talk about, go on to now is what have you got today? So we talked about your 271 million pounds okay, project. So let's get into the asset itself because where I want to get to, Brandon, is for you to tell me how this thing gets financed and the economics and, and, and so forth. But let's remind people what you've got for us. So a Tango is an 
open pit uranium project. It's close to all of the infrastructure, including the mining town of Swakopmund. We're about 20 kilometers from China General Nuclear's Pusab uranium mine, one of the largest in the world. And we're uh, slightly further from the Rossing uranium mine that CNNC recently purchased from Rio Tinto. Close to all of the infrastructure that you would want, we're not relying on third parties to build roads, highways, railways, pipeline, ports, etc. And we're in Namibia, which has successfully exported uranium for 45 years and remains the fourth largest uranium producer in the world. It's a low-grade bulk tonnage project that not only is very, very large from a resource point of view, but exceptionally large from a production point of view. The average over the mine of life is 7.2 million pounds. And to give you some comparatives, that is enough uranium to service the requirements of 17 large scale conventional nuclear reactors. So we are an asset that will assist the large scale deployment of nuclear reactor fleets in a very significant way. Now that's very unusual, that scale. It's really only next gen who can compete with that scale and they're obviously in a different league and uh, in terms of the scale that they are talking about um, delivering into at some point in the future. But what we do have that is very important for investors to understand, we have the potential for producible pounds into the next cycle. As this cycle heats up over the next three to five years, we have all of the long lead items in the bag already. We have environmental approval. We have the social impact assessment approved in Namibia. We have the infrastructure in place. Obviously, we've got the DFS and a three-year pilot plant under our belt. All of those factors that traditionally in the uranium sector take an enormous amount of time and risk are already there for a Tango and for Bannerman. And so for an ASX-listed company, we think that puts us in a very unique and special place. Okay, but I think the, the problem the market sees with your project, and if I'm looking at your share price, it's going to bounce along at four cents for a long time since you know, the last three years or so. People just don't get how you, as a $40 million market cap company, is going to get $800 million bucks of funding and, and where are you going to get it from? And that's a fair criticism if you believe that our only option is to go down a conventional financing route. Conventional financing route from where we stand today would look ugly and it would be very unlikely to deliver shareholder returns. And our board and myself, we're acutely aware of that. And there are alternatives, particularly when you've got the scale and the strategic importance that we have. There's obviously the potential to do joint ventures at an asset level. Um, there's a potential to obtain soft debt export financing type grants. To, to give you an idea of why we think those are realistic avenues to go down, that scale, as I mentioned, at full scale, 7.2 million pounds per annum, that services 17 nuclear power reactors of one gigabyte scale. The capex to build those reactors is about 80 billion US dollars, assuming that the Chinese are building them efficiently. So that 800 million is 1% of that. So the concept of getting soft debt from one or more utilities or sovereign debt to ensure that their investment of $80 billion is fueled over the long term with money that they would receive back once it's in production. I don't think that's unrealistic. And I think those numbers have a relativity that really makes that 
a coherent path forward. And of course, the vertical integration option is certainly a well-worn path in Africa for delivering exceptional shareholder returns, as we saw during the last boom with extract resources being taken out for $2.4 billion, uh, mantra being taken out for over a billion dollars, cash by sovereigns because they're in Africa. Okay, so if I might but, just, let me just say, sorry to interrupt, but Brandon, so, I mean, I, I kind of buy that vertical integration idea, but you've got to make it a reality and you've got to do it. You talked about soft debt there, so I'd love to understand what that means. Um, it's got to happen, and with a company at your scale, you're going to have to do it in a way that shareholders actually benefit from this thing, and it's not just a, a deal for whomever comes in, presumably. I think you're indicating Chinese there. Have you got alternatives in case those numbers don't work your way? Are there smaller, earlier to, earlier to start type models that you've been looking at? Yes, we do, and we flagged in our quarterly report that we are looking at smaller scale operations where we can get into production at a smaller scale. Now, often what you see in bulk tonnage mines is they rely very heavily on economies of scale. And at, a, at 20 million tonnes per annum through the processing plant, a tango is a bulk tonnage operation. You won't get away from that. Where we're very blessed, though, is we've got a, an unusual ore body apart from being very homogenous, very simple, very large, it outcrops. And about the first 50 million pounds have got a very, very low stripping ratio because of that. So that gives us quite a lot of flexibility to dial down our potential production. And what we hope is that by dialing it down to that level, we, the benefits that we get from reducing that stripping ratio not only counterweigh whatever economies of scale that we give up, but we're hoping that that might produce an economic benefit as well. And clearly that's going to go very heavily to that headline capex number. So what we would then have is two horses in this uranium race. We've got an enormous battle strider, which is capable of pulling even the heaviest carriages. And then we've got a more sprightly uh, thoroughbred that can run the shorter races a lot faster. And we don't see one as being preferable to the other. They will just, each of those potential projects, if the smaller scale works for us from a numbers point of view, each of those potential projects will suit a different market and different end users with different levels of appetite. And once we've done that work and completed it and on the assumption that the numbers come through in our favor, we expect that that will really position Bannerman in a very, very different way. And it certainly goes to the investor concerns that you've just highlighted. Okay, so, so another one, another, these are sort of questions which are coming in from subscribers and so forth. So you, you've got a DFS, you originally came out in 2012, you optimised it in 2015, and then again in 2017. Are you done with that? Do you know, I mean, obviously, you've got the smaller scale uh, potential that you're looking at, but with regards to the large scale project, is the DFS complete now? Well, with an enormous project like this, you never actually sit on a DFS. Well, assuming that you're still a believer in uranium and you've got a company that wants to produce, you don't sit on a DFS like this. Uh, when it's this big, even small wins, small reagent wins can add millions to your NPV. And that's what we've been doing. So uh, you're right, the last 
optimization study that we did on the DFS was 2017. That coincided with the completion of our three-year pilot plant program. We've just announced the membrane test work completed to a DFS level. Uh, that's a big win for us because we save an enormous amount on acid. As an example, so acid, it's our biggest reagent. Uh, once we can put a number on that acid, and I'll come to the DFS update in a moment. Once we can put a number on that acid saving, we think that for the large scale project, that'll be a tremendous boost to our NPV. And even the smaller reagent costs, like if we can re recover 80% of the acid from the processing flow sheet, which those definitive level membrane test work has proven, that's a, a big saving on neutralization reagents. Neutralization reagents might only be uh, several cents in the pound, but that adds a chunk to NPV when you're at this sort of scale. Now, what we need to do at the end of all of that is glue those pieces together via an updated DFS. And that's a DFS update process that we have been undergoing for a long period of time now. And I, I just want to explain that that's not a process that I'm in a hurry to draw to a conclusion. Why not? Well, first of all, once we draw that to a conclusion, we lose the opportunity to continue optimizing and working through the mid priority level optimization targets. And we're getting a huge return on investment at the moment because we can do most of that work in-house using our existing resources with a little bit of help con by, uh, from consultants. But the bigger issue is this. If we were to say, right, the market wants us to update the DFS or we need the news flow or you know, we think it'll make our share price go up or something like that, and we still see another six months or 12 months before the market turns significantly in our favour, we've now got a DFS update that's immediately starting to go stale. But what's even more relevant is when you're going to procurement on a DFS and you're asking suppliers of consumables or capital equipment to bid, if they don't see that this project is about to be built, they feel like they're negotiating against themselves. And the big engineering firms who are asking the questions, they're just filing away their numbers um, to be compared against competitors. You have to bid with, you've got to get them bidding with this procurement at the point where they think you're about to start financing and construction, and they've got a chance of being selected as the providers of that equipment, that reagent, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not in a hurry to do those DFS update because I want the best numbers and numbers that are indicative of what we can build this project at. And if it means that I'm leaving quite a lot of value on the table at the moment, um, it hurts. It hurts to see the share price. It hurts to see just some of the, the questions like uh, you're posing at the moment about CapEx and so on. But that's still the best way of creating longer term shareholder value, in my opinion. What's, what's your preference, the large scale project, because you think scale's your friend, or do you think that you'd like to be able to get into production early on this outcropping uh, part of the, the ore body? Well, the nice thing is I don't need to choose between the children anytime soon. But it, realistically, I can't start expressing preferences until we've seen and published the numbers from the smaller scale uh, project. But are you, are you not nervous about raising 800 million bucks. Have you had conversations with, let's say, the Chinese? Because that seems to be 
What's uh, what your PowerPoint's suggesting? The Chinese are the ones most likely to fund this, aren't they? Well, by for the reasons of demand growth that I described, uh, you'd say so. There's three Chinese utilities, all of whom will have very significant uranium demand requirements. One of those doesn't have any owned production. Uh, the other two have mines in Namibia that they control and own. Uh, but in this game, you've also got the Russians, you've also got Middle Eastern groups who are going to require that degree of production by then. Uh, you've got South Korea who are looking at an export strategy after successfully completing um, the Baraka project in UAE. Um, Poland's looking at turning on six or seven reactors. Uh, so there's a number of different groups. But yes, it, it is primarily the Chinese when you when you look at... Have you had conversations? Have you had conversations? No. Why not? Number one, it's the wrong time in the cycle to do that, as you'd well know from your banking background. Uh, you don't want to go knocking on the door when the perception is you'd be on your knees. Um, but the second thing is, we're right down the road from these guys. We, I see them a couple of times a year at WNA events. We're still at the getting to know each other stage. So we don't need to open up those conversations. And I wouldn't want to at this point in any case. We need, realistically, we still need more tension in this uranium sector before we'd be able to test some of those financing alternatives that I described. Okay, so given the current tensions in the marketplace between US, Russia and China, do you think you would be penalised in any way by talking about buddying up to the Chinese? Oh, well, I mean, if we did so, it would depend on what buddying up means. But I mean, look, if that is a well, taking their money. consequence uh, it, with a degree of production control, uh, yes. I think you probably would, and you'd. It would all depend. It would all depend on what they, how much money they're giving, for what level of control. So the the soft debt model that I articulated, that would realistically involve providing, say, a twenty five percent off take. Um, there'd be no point providing all the off take in return for soft debt, or you're not generating any value. But I think to provide a eight or seven hundred million dollar soft debt component, you'd still have to offer up something substantial, of course. Uh, but as we've seen with their model in other parts of the world, I don't think that would then lock us out from selling uranium contracts into anywhere else in the world. Not even the US. Um, no, I don't see why. I don't see why. Um, if you look at Rossing, they sold to China at the same time they were selling to the US. Um, Husab has contracts into US utilities, even though that, that is fully owned by the Chinese. They have to sell 25% of their uranium onto the open market. Um, and CGN have been very active trading. So um, maybe with a US owned utility, and there's only two of them, it might be an issue. But uh, the other utilities are happy to buy on the open market. And for them, it's going to come down to terms and price. And seeing a big brother behind you would probably count in your favour because it, uh, it just demonstrates financial strength. So, Brandon, um, tell me about Namibia. You know, what is the Namibian government doing? Obviously, it's got a track record of uh, uranium mining, but as a jurisdiction that's investable, um, you know, if I look at North America, you know, North American investors, they look at Africa with some trepidation because they're not quite sure about, you know, mining code there and uh, the ability to mine without uh, impediment. So 
What's, what's your experience been? I think the first thing to understand is Africa is a very big place, as you well know, but not everyone um, who's looking at it from a Canadian or a US perspective might really understand. So to compare Namibia with uh, some of the African countries that have produced good films is a little bit like comparing Canada with Nicaragua or Canada with El Salvador or, you know, it's that type of comparison that just doesn't follow. But specifically on Namibia, it's a very, very good operating environment. And I believe that I'm qualified to say that, apart from being involved in Namibian companies for a decade. Uh, I've, I lived there for more than five years with my wife and young children. It's very safe. In all of that time, we didn't even have a car broken into, let alone any issues. It's very secure. It's politically stable. Very low population density, second only to Mongolia in the world. And so that relieves it of a lot of the challenges that much of Africa faces. And uh, you only need to go to the Fraser Institute rankings to realise that Namibia is right up there with Botswana as being in a league of their own in Africa. And that helps in terms of foreign investment. It helps in terms of operating on the ground in Namibia. And then what you can do is you can impose an overlay, which is uranium operability. And I can't emphasize this enough. If you're developing a project, the jurisdiction and the infrastructure and the capacity to export your product is enormously important because you're not only relying on what you control within the mine gate, you're relying on the external infrastructure, but also government infrastructure. Exporting uranium requires an entire government department to not only be set up and functioning in a country, but interacting with the IAEA in Vienna and various other uh, um, agencies. And that can't be turned on overnight, particularly in developing countries that uh, often lack capability. So the fact that that's been ongoing throughout Namibia's 45-year history of exporting uranium is vitally important. Um, the other final point I'd make is socially, what a pleasure working for a uranium company in Namibia. The most of Swakopmund, where I lived initially and where, which is the closest town to us, most of Swakopman was built off the back of uranium. People appreciate it. They don't see it as some zeitgeist or some uh, uh, problematic commodity in the same way that you get in many parts of the world. There isn't that political backlash. It, it just doesn't exist in Namibia, which I obviously find confronting sometimes in my hometown of Perth in Australia and elsewhere that you go. So Namibia is really in a class of its own. And I've said this before and I'll say it again and I'll put my reputation behind it. Namibia is the best operating environment for developing a uranium mine on the planet when you take all of that into account. It's not perfect, no jurisdiction is. But in terms of getting a uranium mine to market and getting your product out and getting it financed and getting political and community support, it is the best jurisdiction on the planet. There's a few companies operating in Namibia. There's a lot of chat at the moment about roll-ups and M&A. Are you open to that? I think you'd be a negligent CEO if you weren't. If that's the route that delivers the best result for shareholders, then there's really only two reasons that would get in that way. Ego, 
or negligence. And neither of those are a problem for me or my board for that matter. So we, we're open to anything that makes sense and delivers shareholder value. Are you in discussion at the moment? No. So let's talk about grade. It's low grade bulk operation, nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But obviously you've got to be very efficient in terms of the way that you process this. And, and you're going through that with the DFS in terms of various optimizations. I get that, okay. Um, but how do you make money? Uh, how do you drive share price? Because at the moment, it's a, it's a waiting game. You're waiting for the price to uranium price uranium to recover. What does it need to get to, and what types of contracts, term contracts, will you need in place to be able to get this thing one financed and two, therefore running and off off the ground? Because you talk about a three year timeline, which is great, but it doesn't factor in the financing component. So I'll have to talk to two thousand and fifteen numbers. Um, so. For someone who's joining the video at this timestamp, um, please go back and listen to everything I've said about improvements that we've made since then. But using the 2015 numbers, uh, we've got a break even of $52. And at $75 a pound, we have uh, an attractive NPV of 419 million US uh, for our project. That's post tax NPV. So at $75, we make great money at $51 we don't break even based on those numbers and uh, this starts to look like a really good project from say $65. Where it really uh, shoots the lights out because of its pure scale and the degree of leverage we've got is if you um, build into your model assumptions of a long-term uranium price above $75. And quite frankly, if you're a uranium investor and you're not working to that scenario, then you know perhaps you either misunderstand what the dynamics are in this sector, or uh, you're just in there for a short-term trade. Because that's why I'm in uranium, and I think most of the people who are on my register, that's why they're in uranium as well. Okay. Um, I had a question thrown at me yesterday from, again, there's a lot of people coming into this who've not been through you know the last three four years and they're just coming at it new so they're saying well cameco and kazatom prom surely they'll just turn the volume up and they'll start producing to meet the world's needs right it, it's fine so people like you have got no chance you don't have a place uh at the table um and you're likely to be as likely to be taken out by those two players as, as anything else I mean, how do you answer that question? Firstly, fair enough with someone coming into this sector to look at the numbers and come to that sort of a conclusion that the idled mines can simply fill in the production. There's one really important thing for any uranium investor to understand, particularly those folk who are coming to this story for the first time. And that is that there is a very substantial level of depletion of mine produced uranium that is starting from next year that becomes critical by 2025 and a enormous challenge for buyers of uranium by 2030. And uh, if you wanna see those numbers, probably the best place to go to is the latest Bannerman presentation that you can get from our website because we do set out the curve there. But just to put some of those uh, depletions into context, um, we've got the Cigar Lake mine, the largest currently operating mine in the world that's due to run out of reserves by 2027. There's mines in Niger, 
which are being closed from next year. You've got the Ranger Mine, which has been an enormous producer over many years, closing next year. Um, you've got numerous smaller mines uh, closing over that period. And you've got Kazakh production, which is in situ recovery, which tends to have a longer tail as those mines grow uh, longer in the tooth. And so you're seeing depletion on that time frame of most of those Kazakh mines just because of the nature of in situ recovery and the way that their production profile tapers over time. So yes, there is the capacity, obviously, for some of these idled mines to come on at prices before Bannerman gets into the race. But the point is, this sector needs a tango from 2025 because of all of these other mines that have run out of ore and their level of production depletion. And like you said at the beginning, you know, a tango fits into the mix. We're going to need all of the producible pounds in this sector, particularly when you recognise that many of the projects out there won't be capable of producing pounds in that time frame. Okay. We've always talked about the need for experienced management team. And I don't mean in the sense in the normal mining sense. I'm talking about uranium has, it is mining, but it's mining plus, we call it, which means that it's got its own peculiarities, it's got its own quirks, and it's got a, 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 it's got a series of quite complex and regulated activities too. We're dealing with radioactive matter here after all. So what's your team got? You know, what's the relevant experience here? Have you put uranium mines into operation before? Do you know how to sell product into the market? How do you, can you get deals done? Yeah, well, look, I certainly agree with you, mate. And I like the word mining plus, but I'd call it mining plus, 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 plus. Because <laughs> you've got the social aspect, you've got the political aspect, you've got the radiological aspect, you've got the environmental aspect, you've got the interest group aspect, and you've got a very complex market to add to all of that. So to answer your question, absolutely. And we're very privileged like that because there is only a small talent pool to go around in the uranium sector. It's been a bear market for a decade. The, and it wasn't particularly cool before that either. So many of the people in this sector are advanced in experience, if we can put it that way, and falling away. Many of the people that I met when I joined the sector back in 2009 just aren't around anymore. Uh, they're not working anymore. So, uh, as many of your audience would know, I've got a profile in the nuclear sector and I understand the market and the dynamics quite well, but that's not the same as operating and building mines, of course. Uh, our chairman in Namibia and our non-executive director is Mike Leach. So he was the managing director of the Rossing uranium mine when that was the largest uranium mine in the world. For 15 years before that, he was the CFO at that mine responsible for contracting and all of the other aspects of interacting with the uranium market that you would expect in Namibia. Our managing director in Namibia is Werner Ebolt. He was mining manager at Rossing and he's also been very involved at a leadership level in the Chamber of Mines of Namibia, born Namibian, very, very well regarded, obviously understands this precise style of mining very, very well. Dustin Garrow, who's been on your show quite successfully, judging from all the Twitter comments. Uh, Dustin is our strategic marketing consultant. Not only has he been in the nuclear industry forever and knows everybody, but he sold uranium from Namibia for Paladin for many years. 
any of the nuances of selling Namibian uranium into the world market, including some of your questions that you answered before, he's all over, he's across all of that. And obviously a fantastic person to have as part of the team. And uh, so that's a uranium specific experience. And we certainly believe that that gives us enough experience at the senior level to then be able to infill the middle management and other operating jobs that we would need to do. Uh, particularly given Namibia's got a long history in uranium and there's plenty of very capable and well-experienced folk that you can draw from there before you even need to start looking at expats, etc. Okay, so, so that does answer that one. That, that's, that's quite a good summary, actually. Um, come back to this price component, okay, because there's something that is just niggling away here. If you are or do have conversations with Chinese utilities who need to, you know, they, they need a lot of pounds, but from, given the numbers that you were mentioning there. They have a very different set of needs from the, the company and the shareholders in the sense that you've got to work out how to capture value and not just give it away because, you know, the utility just wants the pounds. They could care less what your share price is, right? So they could step in today and secure it all, but that's not good for you. It's not good for shareholders. So your conversations and your timing is, is really, really important. But needing 52 bucks to break even when you look at 33 bucks today seems a long long way away and getting to 75 feels even further away so what does the next 12 months look like for you at Bannerman and what do you need to happen in that time frame yeah great question and I think you can look at that from two perspectives uh, from the inside of Bannerman, I can answer that. And then I can attempt to answer that from the perspective of an investor as well. Inside Bannerman, we've got our work cut out from, for us. Uh, we don't run a big team. We keep our overheads low. There is plenty of value addition that we've got lined up for the next 12 months. And so uh, from managing a team and managing a project and adding value to that project, I'm quite comfortable if that's how long we've got because there's a lot that we can do in terms of NPV accretion, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not worried from an internal perspective. From an external perspective and how investors would look at this, um, there's something that you sometimes see amongst retail investors on Twitter and elsewhere, which is they look at the gap as you have between $33 and $52 or $75. And they seem to think that this is a binary question. Bannerman's worth X today at $33 and it's worth 100X at $75. So I might wait until we're at, you know, until we can see $75 on in the writing on the wall before I'd want to step into a stock like that. But the reality is it doesn't work like that. We're a heavily leveraged play. And if you look at any of the other sectors where big leveraged companies have emerged from that transition from a bear market into a bull market, they've revalued at every single step, every transition between X and Y. And that's what we, we will see with Bannerman. Uh, so, and that's, if you look at our register, we've obviously got a very large component of specialist uranium funds. Now they're in their own category because they are strong believers in the thematic and you know the fact that there's as we stand, 22% of our register is in the hands of those funds, just demonstrates that they don't have a problem with $75. But we've also got about another 20% of 
generalist resources institutions on our register. So a retail investor should ask themselves, well, why are those guys there? And they're there because they see Bannerman as a series of stacked options, leveraged options to the uranium price. They know that as uranium price goes from 30 to $35, we see a leveraged effect in Bannerman's share price because of our scale and the fact that we can deliver producible pounds into the next cycle. Same from 35 to 40, same from 40 to 45 and so forth. And for many of the institutions on our register, they treat them as stepped options. As it goes to 35, some of those institutions will say, right, do I rewrite that option by holding or do I cash that option in because I've now seen Bannerman's share price double, for example, and therefore uh, I'm going to cash that option out and take it off the table. And retail investors, I think, can include Bannerman in their portfolio in a very similar way. And, uh, you know, if they're holding on a multi-year, multi-bagger for when we do get to $75, then that's fantastic. I look forward to seeing them at the party when we get there. Okay. Um, so that you're talking about being a, a leveraged play. And so just give me your definition of what you mean by that. Just for- Yeah, so it's a, it's a conventional definition of a leveraged play. So okay. you've got um, very, very large production capability that exacerbates and uh, multiplies the movements in value compared with the movement in value of the underlying commodity. Okay. So basically, people need to believe that this thing will get into production. And I I think there are companies that we've interviewed that won't. Um, So people need to believe that you've got the capability and the knowledge and we'll be able to get the finance to be able to get this thing into production to be able to accrete value up that with those steps as you've described. Um, and you feel you will? Yeah, well, look, I guess we haven't talked about financing capability. We are a lean team with a lean board, but our chairman, Ronnie Beaver, he's an investment banker, ran Rothschild in Australia um, uh, Pacific for many years. Uh, you know, this was his bread and butter, even at this scale for many years. Ian Burville's also on our board. Uh, Ian was a um, partner of Resource Capital Fund, still the largest PE resources PE firm in the world. There isn't any work for Rothschild before then. So there isn't anything about financing that uh, between them, Ian and Ronnie don't understand. And uh, whilst I wasn't a project finance lawyer, uh, because of the corporate and the M&A background that I've got, uh, I interacted a lot with that. So. Uh, I think I understand the process relatively well, at least well enough to be able to set out a strategy for that. Okay, I look forward to sort of seeing what you actually do over the next 12 months, because I think the, 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 the uranium space has gone through some rapid movements recently, but it needs, needs to move more for people to believe that this thing's gonna happen anytime soon. I mean, have you, have you got a view on when you think you're gonna be able to start start to be able to have meaningful conversations in the context that you've described earlier, in a way that you feel a bit more in control, because your, your share price perhaps wouldn't allow you to have a, a strong and robust conversation with a funder now. But at what point do you think you will be able to have those conversations? So, in terms of the time frame, as we've discussed on your on other occasions on the show, that's a bit of a difficult one because all of the feedback that I'm getting is that utilities are really quite distracted at the moment with COVID-19 measures, whether it's working from home or dealing with some of the uh, on-site challenges that they've got at their reactors. 
So even as we see uranium start to knock on the door of $35, that's not in itself going to be a trigger for long-term contracting because uh, the buyers have got bigger fish to fry right now. And if, if they have to focus on their key priorities as uranium goes through 35 to 40, well, so be it from their perspective. So I still think that we're talking about end of this calendar year before we see substantive contracting take place. And I think that will benefit Bannerman and other um, uranium companies because by then we'll have a spot price that creates a more realistic base from which to achieve long-term contracting premiums from. Um, the other way to look at this, which isn't so much a timing point of view, but is more of a price point of view, is our project starts to look really interesting to a number of parties once they can see $50, $55 clearly. It doesn't mean we need to have that price. It just needs to be that they can see that this sector has now emerged from the long-term bear market. They don't need to see $136 like we saw during the last um, boom. They don't need to see term contracting at $95 as we saw during the last boom. They need to see this price pushing through 50 to 55 and at that point, the, the sovereign groups or the utilities or the groups that are looking at vertical integrations, they will start weighing up, on the one hand, the relative simplicity of being a buyer of uranium through long-term contracts at, let's say, $55, versus the security of being an owner, in some form, of production at a similar price. Now, there's, there's pros and cons on both sides, of course. But that for me is an inflection point where Bannerman becomes a lot more interesting to those types of groups. And you asked me when I would start talking to those sort of groups. Well, for me, that would be a clear marker that we've got sufficient tension in the market that uh, I know that they'd want to be talking to me. But at that point, that's when I'd be interested in opening a discussion with them. Have you got enough cash to get you there? Depends on the time frame. We've certainly got enough cash to to get through that first uh, estimation. So we've got $4.5 million uh, based on our typical burn rate. That's about uh, eight quarters, so two years. So we've got enough uh, money to see this calendar year out, next calendar year, and if we needed to go a bit further, we could. So if we find ourselves not seeing um, conditions uh, improve within that time frame, well, it, it, it probably speaks bigger things about the market and something's gone wrong somewhere. So I would say, yeah, we've, we've got the cash that we need to see that cycle through. Have you been buying shares? Well, we talked about the project work that we've been doing. So I am out. I'm, it's, uh, we're, it's a blackout period for Bannerman. And let me just tell you, the, the last... The last shares that I bought on market last year were at about where the share price is now. So I have been pulling my hair out seeing sort of uh, global financial crisis type numbers on our share price and not being able to participate. But good luck to everyone who did. All of those supporters who got in there at two cents who have now seen a healthy return, good on them. Right, Brandon, I think that's a great summary. We, are, we, we haven't spoken um, for a long time about Bannerman. You've got something... Uh, interesting happening. I hope the market does recover for you guys. Cause I think uranium has been battered, um, but I think people are excited again. Yeah, for good reason, for, for real good reason. So for all those excited folks out there, many of you have waited a long time. 
enjoy it because I think it's going to be a wild ride from here. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.